Hello, hello. Welcome to the Natural Birth Co. Podcast. Today we are speaking with just more on the podcast where we're going to talk about vaginal births after cesarean sections and how to prepare for one. Now, this is a topic that I absolutely adore and I find really, really fascinating for a couple of reasons. So firstly, um, the physical aspect of it in regards to the pelvic biomechanics, creating space in the pelvis, figuring out what happened with the first cesarean section, why that happened, and then doing things and learning things and informing mums and dads to mitigate that same risk as last time. So lots of body balancing, lots of creating space in the pelvis, lots of um, physical techniques to create space. Now that's one side of it. Now the other side of it is the emotional aspect. Now especially if um, the reason for the first cesarean section was, you know, you went through labor and then labor went on for too long and whatever happened, baby wasn't moving down, cervix wasn't opening, that you ended up in an emergency cesarean section. This could be a massive, massive emotional aspect to this birth. Uh, Quite often that birth experience may stem some sort of distrust in the body, um, some belief that, you know, your body can't birth vaginally. Uh, which is really, really difficult to move past and have that full belief for this birth that your body can birth naturally. It can be a really difficult emotional process to have that trust and surrender, which we know in and out is so important for a natural birth experience. So in this podcast, we're going to break down why did the cesarean section happen in the first place, which is really important because if the cesarean section happened in the first place because it was planned, because the placenta was low or something, is going to be completely different to if you labored for 30, 35 hours and the cervix wasn't opening and baby was still high and things just weren't progressing. Um, So very different in preparation for those two things. So have a listen, try to diagnose to yourself, why did I have this first cesarean section? And then plan your birth prep around that. Definitely reach out if you have any questions. I completely understand it can be a little bit tricky to self-diagnose this sort of stuff. So I'm always happy to answer and help you through that because, yeah, I do feel truly, truly um, empathetic towards these situations and I'd love to be of service here. So enjoy the podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Natural Birth Co. We help women and their partners prepare physically and mentally for a natural and empowering birth experience. With pregnancy yoga, Pilates, and workshops, all led by our registered midwife, we have a studio here on the Sunshine Coast, Australia. Otherwise, all of our services are available online. You can learn more at naturalbirthco.com. If you wish to advertise on this podcast, you can visit naturalbirthco.com forward slash pregnancy dash podcast. Now enjoy this ad-free episode. Vaginal births after cesarean section. Now, as I was saying, this is a topic that I feel super duper passionate about. We have a bunch of mamas coming through the business at the moment, preparing for a vaginal birth after a cesarean section. And there is so many components to it, and we're going to discuss a lot of them today. Um, We're going to talk about the physical aspect of it. 
And we're also gonna talk about the mental aspect of it. Now, having a VBAC sometimes is more of a mental game than a physical game because you can do all the physical prep in the world and it's done. You can tick it off the list and be like, cool, I've done everything that I can do. However, sometimes the mental game is a little bit harder to get ahead of and it's not as much as ticking something on a to-do list when you've got to have proper belief um, into certain concepts, etc. So we'll break that down separately. Um, first thing we need to ask ourselves when preparing for a vaginal birth after cesarean section is what caused the first cesarean section in the first place? Sometimes we can, like often we can't be definitive about exactly what caused it, but often after a bit of discussion about the scenario, we can get pretty clear about what the reason is behind the first cesarean section. Sometimes this can be a little bit triggering for women and I totally appreciate that and I think it's good to do in your own time. I'm super here for you if you want to talk about it. Sometimes talking about it with your birth partner can be really effective as well to get really clear on what was the cause for the first one. And this is going to be both for the physical preparation and mental preparation of your VBAC. Now, this is going to determine how we can mitigate the risk of what happened last time, this time, okay? Some cesarean sections that happened with your first babe are completely unavoidable. There was nothing we can do about it. And in that case, we need to really surrender and accept what happened and surrender and accept and release control for this current birth as well. Control what we can control, release what we cannot control. Um, however, there are many cesarean sections that actually unfortunately take place unnecessarily for mamas. This can be for reasons such as maternal exhaustion during labor, and we talk about this being both physical and mental exhaustion, and we do actually cover heaps about how to conserve mental and physical energy during labor, which I feel is a topic that isn't really discussed a lot. However, I talk about this a lot, how it's these two are two of the three main reasons that I see a woman actually tap out of the birth that she, sorry, tap out of a birth that she wants, which may be a natural birth, to a birth that she doesn't quite want, with my, which might be an epidural or a cesarean section, is because of that physical exhaustion, that mental exhaustion, or maybe the third reason, not quite able to handle the contractions of labor anymore. Um, another reason that may be avoidable is that that cervix was just not opening um, in your first labor, contractions would continue, 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 and the cervix would just continue to not open and not progress um, in the eyes of the healthcare provider. Uh, this may also be due to baby not moving down the pelvis. Sometimes women will get to nine centimeters, even 10 centimeters, and for whatever reason, baby just cannot come through the pelvis, and that leads to a cesarean section. Um, this can be very much avoided a lot of the time as well. And this may be due to contractions not quite getting to that strong and effective stage during labor, um, which may be another reason that may be within our control as well. So we're going to cover, how many have we got? One, two, three, four, five-ish. Um, different scenarios as to why you may have had your first cesarean section. And then we're going to cover how to um, prepare for that particular um, example. Now there could be heaps more examples other than what we're going to talk about. And I'm so more than willing to chat with you outside of this live um, about those examples. So let's talk about the easiest, first of all, placenta previa. 
Now, placenta previa is where your placenta grows over the top of your cervix. So at the bottom of the uterus and it's fully covering the cervix. Now, um, in a placenta previa, you absolutely cannot have a vaginal birth. It's not even an option, not even a question. You have to have a cesarean section. Now, there is nothing you did to cause this happening your first time and there is absolutely nothing you can do second time round to prevent or um, reduce yourself from having a placenta preview again. So this is a perfect example of complete surrender of control. You did nothing wrong before. There's nothing we could do about it then. There's nothing we can do about it now. There's not necessarily an additional risk of this time you having a placenta preview in comparison to other mums just because you've had one before. Um, so we really just got to wait and see what happens with this placenta, where it grows and go from there. Now, if second time round, your placenta actually does grow on the side wall and you can very well have a vaginal birth if you want to, um, you would literally prepare like a first time mum would prepare. Um, there's nothing different in how you would prepare for this sort of VBAC um, just because you've had a cesarean section before. So when I say you would prepare like a first time mum would prepare, that is preparing the mind, preparing the body and preparing your, fight, your partner. <laughs> And um, these are the three aspects that us at Natural Birth Co. really go deep into for preparing for first-time mummers is preparing mind, body, and partner is really necessary to have that natural birth experience. Great. So second of all, let's talk about breech bubbers. So you had a breech bub with your first babe and you had a cesarean section for that. Fair call. Now, I want us to reflect. Some breech bubbers can be completely natural and normal for that mum's shape, pelvis and uterus for that first pregnancy. If that's the case, there's nothing we can do about that. However, there is times where babies can be breached due to what we call an imbalance of the ligaments. So I wanna break this down. Some breaches we can influence, some breaches we cannot influence. So we're going to focus on what we can influence taking control of what we can take control of, surrendering and accepting what we can't control. So when I talk about um, babes being breached that we can control, this is from an imbalance in the ligaments and specifically in our uteral sacral ligaments. So I have a little poster here. Now I wanted to explain this to you. So we have uteral sacral ligaments that attach from the bottom of the uterus to the inside of the iliac crest. Sorry, I'm mirroring here, doing opposite to what I'm seeing. So it's attached from the lower uterus at the front of the uterus back to the pubic bone at the back. So I'll show you an example in another way because my finger's all over the shop on that bloody poster. So at the bottom of your uterus, you have a ligament that attaches from the bottom of the uterus here back to the iliac crest either side. These are two uteral sacral ligaments, okay? So now their role during um, the pregnancy and birth experience is to guide baby with flexion and rotation as they descend through the pelvis. So flexion meaning chin to chest, rotation meaning wiggling the body back and forth, wiggling the head back and forth, rotation and flexion through the pelvis. The ligaments, there's a few ligaments that I'm talking about in this example, however, this is the one that we're talking about in regards to breach. Ligaments, one of their main roles is to guide baby as a roadmap to flex and rotate to navigate their way through the pelvis. 
They are a really, really important guide to help baby know how to nuzzle their way out of your individual pelvis using your individual ligaments. Now, this is actually super duper important in regards to having not only a natural birth, but also a nice, efficient and progressive birth. So getting back to our uterosacral ligaments, when they're balanced, that's their role. When they're imbalanced, let's imagine these ligaments that attach from the bottom of the uterus to the iliac crest, they are imbalanced, meaning they are shorter, they are tighter and on either side. So they're either creating a twist at the bottom of the uterus or a tight band at the bottom of the uterus, right above the inlet of the pelvis, right? So we say when baby's head enters into the inlet, this is called baby engaging. When baby's floating up above, they're not engaged, the head enters, they're engaged, and they continue to come deeper and deeper and deeper through the pelvis. Now, when there's a tight band or a twist at the bottom of the uterus from tight um, uterosacral ligaments, we decrease the space in the bottom of the uterus. So if it's only a little bit tight, this will mean that Bubby's head cannot engage in the pelvis, but it is floating up above the pelvis. So its head might be down. We probably don't even realize because unfortunately there's not many symptoms of tight uterosacral ligaments before birth. Um, so the head is just floating up above the pelvis. Now, um, we will go into deep heart, what goes down when this happens. However, when the ligaments are even tighter than this, they're so tight that the head can't fit down the bottom, that is when the booty flips down to the bottom and the head's up above because in a newborn, the booty is actually smaller than the head. So this is when we can create our breach to happen. And then as a little added, if they're so tight that even a booty can't fit, the ligaments are so tight, this is often when babes can go transverse, so side to side. Um, transverse babies can't be born via a um, vaginal birth, they must be born via a cesarean section. So if you have these tight ligaments, this can be what may potentially have caused Bubby to be breached. So now, how do we know whether this may have been the case or not? I invite you to reflect here and depending on how long it's been, it might be a bit tricky to know. But have a think, was baby moving towards the end of your pregnancy or even more towards like 30 to 37 weeks? Was baby maybe flipping up and down? Was baby moving left to right? Was there tons of big movements in that last 10 weeks of your pregnancy? Or was bub pretty stationary where they were? Were they not really moving around a lot at all? Because this might be an indication that bubs didn't really have a lot of space in the uterus to get in the right position regarding um, the ligaments. So um, another thing to think about, did your baby's head or booty engage in the pelvis during that end of pregnancy or during the labor at all? Were they able to engage in the pelvis as in enter the inlet of the pelvis? Um, if yes, that might be a sign that your babe was breached because that's what's natural and normal for you. However, if no, if your babe wasn't able to engage a lot, if they were pretty locked into a position from 30-ish weeks and there wasn't a lot of big movements, just little kicks, etc. Um, did you feel pain or stretching when you would arch your spine or when you would go from sitting to standing? Did you feel pain in your ligaments at all throughout your abdomen and your pelvis? 
were you very mobile through your pregnancy or were you um, quite stationary throughout the first pregnancy um, that you had a breech bubba in? Um, yes, were we rounding into the spine? Were we slouching a little bit? Maybe relaxing on the couch a little bit? Maybe um, at a desk job and we were just sitting in our normal chair? Were we experiencing um, all of these things in your first pregnancy? Because if that's the case, maybe this might be an indication that there was a slight imbalance in the ligaments which may have contributed and caused Bubby to be breached with the first pregnancy. Now, something I wanna be super duper clear on is I definitely don't want this to be a blame game. You don't know what you don't know. That first pregnancy has come and gone and you didn't know this stuff last time, so otherwise you would have done it differently. So you don't know what you don't know. There's no point kind of dwelling on the past. I should have done this, I should have done that because you didn't know. However, if this is the case, that is super exciting because it means that there is so much we can do for this pregnancy this time to avoid the same experience, to avoid a second breech baby if possible. So, interesting. Now, what else did I wanna say about that? Great, so if this was you last time, as I said, there's plenty that you can do about this. And this is going to mainly involve physical preparation. Physical preparation of the ligaments that surround and are within the uterus and the pelvis. Preparation of the pelvis and the joints of the pelvis to create mobility, lubrication, and size. So this is what you would definitely mainly focus on if you're going for a VBAC this time and your baby was breached last time. Okay, cool. Now, next thing we're going to talk about, next potential reason that you had a cesarean section last time and you're going for a VBAC this time. Did your labor never start? This led to an induction. And this led to what we call the cascade of intervention. So what this may look like is that sometimes this is avoidable and sometimes this is not. Okay, first of all, as a quick little side note, sometimes labor cannot start because the body knows it's not ready because those ligaments that we just talked about, uterosacral ligaments that are attached to the bottom of the uterus to the back of the iliac crest, if they're tight, creating a tight band at the bottom of the uterus and babes can't engage, that can be a reason that the body doesn't let itself go into labor because it knows it's not going to be a good end result and it's waiting and waiting and waiting to the very last moment for those ligaments to lengthen with more and more relaxant pumping through the body. So that could be a reason. And if that's the case, um, having those ligaments nice and loose leading up to labor this time so that we know, okay, that's definitely not the reason as to why labor's not starting can be really amazing, really empowering, and hopefully allow your labor to start naturally on time for your individual body. Now, aside from that, what can really help with this scenario? This is something I educate my mamas on all the time because this is what gives you power. This is what gives you the complete control of everything you can control, all right? So sometimes if labor doesn't start, we can't do anything about that a lot of the time. You might have completely balanced ligaments. You might be on the red raspberry leaf. You might be getting the acupuncture. You might be having the seven dates a day, doing all the things and labor's not starting and there's nothing we can do about that. So first of all, having a deep understanding and education about the risk of induction versus the risk of waiting for labor to start naturally. 
Now, this is something that really isn't talked about or the thought entertained very often at all. So when we talk about the risk of induction versus risk of waiting, often when we think, okay, we're going overdue, we've obviously got risks that are there when going overdue. And then we can often be presented with this option of an induction as if it's this light and shining armor with no risks at all. However, induction very much has its own risks of itself. And everything has its own risk of itself. Being pregnant in general and birthing in general is risky business, but it's always a balance of weighing up the risk according to your individual values. Okay, so let's elaborate on that. The risk of induction definitely poses risks to you having a natural labor experience, definitely poses a risk to your perineum, to your pelvic floor, to your connection with your babe, to um, you know the risk of having a cesarean section infection, all sorts of things, right? But then those risks may very well be better taking on those risks than the alternative, which is waiting for labor to start naturally, which has other risks of its own, right? So it's about comparing these two risks. So that's gonna be very different, you looking at comparing these two risks bang on 40 weeks as opposed to 42 weeks. You are going to make a new decision and a new value-based decision each and every day almost, or each and every couple of days as you get to those later ends of pregnancy. So when I talk about value-based decision, it's really important to consider three main things. One, the opinion of your healthcare provider, and this is trying to take the bias out of it as much as you possibly can. It's really hard, um, and unfortunately, almost always, healthcare providers, especially in the hospital setting, are going to tell you your options with coercive language to get you to choose the decision that they want you to choose. So one, take on the thing of the opinion of your healthcare provider. Two, do your own research. Three, what are your values and your birth partner's values and use those values to greatly influence your decision based on what the research is telling you. Okay, so this is what we talk about in our value-based decision-making and I teach all of our parents at this value-based decision-making process because it's so important to do not only in pregnancy but in birth. And the thing that has rung true so often to me over the last six months is women, the difference between women having a traumatic birth and a birth that they're satisfied with, that they feel confident about and they're proud of, is whether they were the primary decision maker of their pregnancy and their birth experience. They were in control of all the decisions and they did absolutely everything that they could to prepare. They are the biggest, biggest, biggest differences. Okay, so that's one aspect of it. The next thing is have a deep understanding and education about induction. So induction, often we think that if we say yes to an induction, we agree to have it done, that we're kind of like, hands up, do with me what you want with me, um, I'll do whatever you tell me. It doesn't have to be the case. We can absolutely have value-based inductions. You can absolutely halt that cascade of intervention and accept this part of the induction, that part of the induction. I'm just gonna take a little bit here. I'm actually not going to accept that. And it is 100% within your control. It is 100% your choice, no one else's, no matter what they say, no matter what anyone says that you have to do. You do not have to do anything. Sit tight for a moment, let me just 
So that's in regards to induction. So in, in inductions, you can do things. So the next point is having a supportive partner that can advocate for you during your induction. Each intervention should be an informed value-based decision-making process, which kind of ties in with the last one. So with an induction, there are things that you can absolutely do to keep you on the natural path. Just because you might have something to start labor doesn't mean you need to keep having all the things. Doesn't mean you need to force having the waters broken or force the contractions to go faster and faster or lay on the bed or get an epidural. Like you can absolutely take the first step or the second step or whatever it is and then try to encourage the rest along the natural path. And by this, I mean, you might have something that starts the labor for you and then you use your natural hormones to continue the process of labor. You use your intentional active movement to create space in the pelvis to allow babes to continue to move down, the contractions to continue to move your baby down, to allow the baby to move down, be born through the vagina, come out, all with the rest is natural. That is like kind of the idea behind an induction. Ideally, we don't have to take every single um, intervention along the way and we can just have something to kick it off and then continue on. I've had mamas where literally with an induction, they might be at 42 weeks and they're like, why isn't labor starting? Um, and all they need is a little sniff of Sinto. It's like they might get the first um, interval of the asyntocinum, uh, which is one mil an hour, so barely anything. And that just kicks their body into labor. It's like their, their body's like, oh, that's all right. That's what I'm meant to be doing. I've been trying to figure it out and I couldn't figure it out. So sometimes your body just needs a tiny little bit. And if your body is fully prepared in all the other ways, all it needs is a little sniff of Sinto to get going. Um, yeah, cool. So let's say that. The other thing that you can do to help stop with this cascade of intervention if you do decide to get a, um, an induction based on your value-based decision making is learn how to cope with pain and labor. So, so often um, inductions lead to epidurals, often because the pain is worse, to be honest, because the hormones aren't quite working the same as they do in a natural induction, which again, we I can teach you totally how to encourage the natural hormones to be there just as much during an induction, which can help reduce the pain. So you're kind of experiencing the same labor pains as what a naturally laboring woman would. But unfortunately, with a lot of women who experience inductions, the pain's more intense and this can lead to an epidural. So learning how to cope with pain and labor is a really amazing way um, to try to avoid um, that epidural if that's something that you don't want if you're wanting to lean towards a natural birth. So that includes, we teach that with like seven practical techniques, but it's got breath work, you've got affirmations, you've got distraction, you've got um, using like pain perception, rewriting pain, um, sorry, rewriting neural pathways, etc. using meditations leading up to pregnancy to prepare your mind to be able to cope with this pain and labor and perceive it as positive is so important for having an induction that doesn't cascade. Um, and then lastly, learning, if you do get an epidural, what can we do to still allow the baby to come out of the vagina? We can do things position-wise to allow your labor to still progress as naturally as possible. Again, here at Natural Birth Co, we're not 100% natural, 100% um, medical. It doesn't have to be one or the other. You can get this beautiful in-between if you want that as well. Um, so we very much will educate you on 
Okay, if you do choose to get an epidural, you can absolutely still move on the bed to create space in the pelvis. So this can be a really effective way is learning all of these bits and pieces. If last time you had an induction and then it led to this cascade of intervention to mitigate that risk next time. Um, okay, cool. The next um, potential of what may have happened. Did labor start and was going fine and within 10-ish hours, which I'll explain soon, Something happened to make you have to go for an emergency cesarean section. Now, what a vague fucking sentence is that, right? So let me explain. Bear with me. Something happened. And by that, I mean you might have had a big bleed randomly. Bubby's heart rate may have declined very quickly and stay declined randomly. Um, both of these are really rare circumstances. Now, in this situation... This is a perfect example of there is nothing you can do to avoid those things. There is nothing you did to cause them. There's nothing you can do to avoid them. Unfortunately, they are what they are. And this is a perfect example of surrender and acceptance. If you wanted to go for a VBAC, this is going to be just complete trust and surrender to the process of birth, which I understand can be really hard. And this is something I've been talking to my mamas about a lot is that when we are in pregnancy and birth, there is so many things we can control and so many things we can't control. And this time is a very delicate but beautiful balance of what we can control, grasping on tight, controlling what we can control, doing our physical prep, doing our mental prep, Take, making decisions that are value-based for us and that are based on research as well. The things that we can't control, such as if everything's going well and we have a random bleed, such as Bobby's heart rate just dropping out of nowhere for no reason that we can tell, for no reason that we can control, we have to have complete surrender and acceptance for that as well. And it is really difficult to have this balance and I feel like literally when you achieve this balance, even talking about this with my mum, it has helped me in normal life as well. Like sometimes you can do everything you can. And for whatever reason, this certain situation doesn't work out how you would really, really wanted it to. And there was nothing you could do about it. You've done all the reflection and you're like, there's nothing I can learn from this. And it just is what it is. I just need to move on with my life. So, and I'm not saying that in your circumstance, it's as easy as my circumstance to just move on with your life. So sorry, I don't mean that to diminish um, like how you're feeling, etc. But there are some things that we can't control and surrender. And this may have been an experience that you had last time. Um, okay, cool. So that's the plan for if you had that last time is controlling and surrendering to the process of birth. If doing a VBAC is something that you want to do and rewriting those neural pathways again to build that trust, rebuild that trust with the body to birth. Now I want to clarify here that what I'm talking about in regards to the 10 hours, a 10 hours isn't specific. Essentially what I'm trying to get down here is that you had a labor that had no sign of an obstruction. Okay, it's not like labor was going for an obscene amount of time and baby was stuck in the pelvis because of an obstruction. This is just a labor that was progressing normally and out of nowhere something, um, something happened. Cool. All right, I'm just going to have a little sip of my tea, but let's give a moment to 
appreciate this beautiful mug. How lovely, given to me by my mother-in-law for my birthday. I love drinking out of a nice piece of crockery, to be honest. Anyways, continuing on. Next issue or thing that may have happened in your first cesarean section. So, labor was 24 hours plus, leading to a cesarean section. Now, this was due to baby not moving down, aka obstructed labor, or the cervix not opening to 10 centimeters, aka failure to progress, which I'm so sorry to use that terminology. Sometimes it just may help you associate, oh yeah, that's what they said to me. Um, that happened last time. So, this may or may not include Bubby's head being in an awkward position, maybe deflexed, maybe asynclitic to the side, um, is what I mean by an awkward position. So, this reason is the most common reason for the cesarean sections to happen um, unexpectedly. So, we unfortunately label 33% of births here in Australia um, to be cesarean sections due to an obstructed labor slash failure to progress. They're kind of under the same banner in the hospital setting. Now, it's interesting because the World Health Organization actually says that the normal amount to have an obstructed labor is 3%. So where's the other 30% coming from, right? Over in Africa, women who are birthing normally, women who are birthing amongst other women who are wise in the town and know how to assist a natural birth, these women that are with women, which is what an actual midwife defines. Um, that's the whole point of our job is to be with women. They have 3% of an obstructed labor, whereas we have 33% in our modern day society, in our modern day hospital system, birthing system. Why are we experiencing 30 extra percent of obstructed labors? I have two theories that I really truly believe are 100% contributing at least to this increased um, amount of obstructed labors. So first of all, is an imbalance in the ligaments and muscles that surround the uterus and the pelvis during birth. Second of all is the lack of support during labor, helping you to be intentionally active during your birth experience and your labor experience to create space in the pelvis, in the right planes of the pelvis, to allow your baby to descend through the pelvis naturally, picking up the signs and treating the signs if an, a labor becomes obstructed or stalled, we might call it as well. Okay, so let's break each of these down. Now, when I'm talking about the ligaments, okay, ligaments and muscles that surround the uterus and the pelvis, these are really important to be balanced because they have two main roles. First of all, they encourage baby into the optimal position for your individual pelvis. So the optimal position, if this is um, new to you, listen to our previous lives or podcasts because um, I actually go into it, I think about two podcasts back. Optimal position. So balanced ligaments allow your baby the space and guide them into the optimal position for your individual pelvis. The second role is that these ligaments are all strewn and crossed around within this pelvic cavity that your bub descends through. Now these ligaments being balanced, their role is to guide baby. They literally 
wrap around Bubby's head, guiding them to flex chin to chest and rotate and wiggle their head around to descend themselves through the pelvis. This then allows the head to descend, the head to put pressure on that cervix, the cervix to open, soften, mature and progress to 10 centimeters and the contractions and or maternal pushing will continue to descend your baby down the vagina, crown and come out of the uterus. This is what the ligaments do when they're balanced. When they are out of balance, first of all, Bub can start labor in a potentially suboptimal position for the individual woman's pelvis, okay? This is going to straight off the bat lengthen your labor and make it more difficult, okay? Now, the second thing that they'll do is that even if the right ligaments are balanced to make baby be in the optimal position, whichever position that is for you, However, the balance that are within the uterus and the pelvis are all tight throughout here. They literally act as a gate in the pelvis, a closed gate inside the pelvis that as baby's trying to move down, down, the contractions are pushing baby down, pushing baby down, pushing baby down through the pelvis. The head is getting caught on this closed gate within the pelvis, which is one, preventing baby to move down and descend, and two, preventing bubs head to move down to put pressure on that cervix, preventing the cervix from opening. Depending what ligament it is and depending how tight, these two things can happen with an obstructed labor and tight ligaments. So that is how your ligaments and body balancing can really hugely, massively, massively, massively impact your birth experience. Now, two, Everyone has a different shaped internal pelvis. So let's have a look. We have our inlet, which is the top. We have our mid pelvis, which is the middle. And we have our outlet, which is the very bottom of the pelvis sits bones. Now, everyone's pelvic shape is different. Um, there are different ways to create space at different planes of the pelvis. You might potentially have a really protruding sacral prominence and your tailbone naturally sticks out a fair bit rather than tucking under. So what that might mean is that you need to create, be really um, creative in the ways that you move your body in that start of labor to let bubs engage into this inlet of the pelvis, okay? The entry point of the pelvis. Now this is really helpful when one, we're moving our body intuitively and we're in a really um, safe environment that we feel able to tune into our intuition and we feel um, safe to be able to move our body in the way that's comfortable for us. Um, but two, having someone there such as a midwife, such as a birth partner, such as a husband who is educated, which is literally what we do with the birth partners by the way, educated to help you create space in the pelvis determine where baby is in the pelvis and create space in that area that baby is, allows you to not only have a progressive normal labor experience, but also identify if there's a stall in labor and mitigate that, get rid of that stall. Whatever stalling labor, we do all sorts of different positions to get rid of that obstruction, get rid of that closed gate, open the gate, let the floodgates open, let the bubby come through and out. So um, yes. That's the other thing. Now, I'm wondering, and I would love to hear from you, 
Do any of these scenarios ring true to you? Does any of these scenarios of what happened to your first birth sound like, yeah, that's exactly what happened? Um, and if not, or if you're unsure, might be a bit of this, might be a bit of that, I'm so here to have a chat. Um, even listen to this with your birth partner and see it from their perspective because quite often the birth partner has a completely different memory of the birth experience than you. So it can be really helpful to um, hit them up about it. So something I wanted to talk about next is that VBACs are often more of a mental game than a physical game, right? So depending on what the reason was for the first one, VBACs can often leave us with a lot of distrust and lack of faith in the body to birth naturally. Um, and this can be a really, really difficult thing to move past. And I have so much empathy for this scenario. We've had lots of mamas come through with VBACs. Um, honestly, many of them have gone through to have beautiful natural birth experiences. And there is nothing more healing to a traumatic birth than to have a healing birth experience. Honestly, nothing is going to heal that trauma as much as having a beautiful birth experience where you're in so much control, you've done so much preparation, you've done absolutely everything you can and then everything beautifully goes your way. However, if you do really do everything that you can for that second one as well, and it doesn't work out and you do end up in a cesarean section again, which again, another lady, who actually wasn't one of our mamas, just a lady that I was talking to, had that experience. And she said she felt completely different second time round with that experience, just having full surrendering and acceptance, knowing she did everything she could do. She was the primary decision maker of her birth and it still didn't go down. That just wasn't meant to be for her. And she accepts that and sees that exactly for what it is, which is much easier to surrender and accept when you've done everything you can, rather than being left with the regret, the guilt, the wondering, what if I did this? What if I did that? That's just the worst position to be left in. So yeah, um, sorry, I tangented there a little bit. However, it's kind of still on track. So they're very much more of a mental game, a lot of trust. What I find with my VBAC mamas is when we, we talk about their first birth and we can kind of get a rough idea as to what happened with the first birth, why she had to have the Caesar. Okay, we then, a lot of the time it is a controllable factor. We then do, the, do what we need to do to physically prepare to get around that problem from last time. And this gives the mother the thought that, okay, cool, the situation is completely different to the first time around. I've dealt, dealt with that first problem. It is like way more unlikely to happen now. And this can then really help with the mental game. Oh, I did have a lack of faith in my body before, but now that I've balanced all my ligaments, now that my partner knows exactly how to create space in the pelvis, now that X, Y, and Z has happened, I've done the yoga, I'm mobile in my pelvis, whatever it is, now that it's happened, I do and I can have full trust in the body to birth. It's different if everything's the same as the first time to have full trust in the body to birth. However, if you've done things very different and you've prepared in a very different way, this can really help us with having full trust in the body to birth. 
um, it can almost completely mitigate the fact that you're going for a VBAC. Not completely, but it can really, really, really help reduce the, um, the stress and the doubt that you might mentally feel. Um, when you take charge and you take control of the things that you can, this is what I find is the most empowering thing for my mothers is that they, yeah, they take charge and they control what they can. They take back their power. They take back their power. So I'm going to close this beautiful, beautiful discussion about VBACs with the final words of really control what you can control. Surrender and accept what you can't control. Honestly, that is the beautiful balance and secret to having a beautiful birth experience. So thank you so much for joining. I really hope you enjoy if you watch the replay. Definitely feel free to hit me up with any questions you may have. Um, if you've already had a cesarean, you might not even be pregnant again and you're just curious as to ballpark ideas as to why the first one happened, definitely let me know. Um, always, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you being here. All of our podcasts are recorded live in the Facebook group, so you are not only the first to listen to the podcast, but you are able to ask questions throughout the podcast. If you wish to jump into the Facebook group, the link is in the show notes. I would really appreciate if you left a five-star written review, shared this podcast with someone who would appreciate, or even share your recent listen on your social stories. Talk to you soon.